Infirmary Media. Broadcasting from the Infirmary Media Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we whipped up a worst month duel. I will once again flip back to the 1980s as I bring you the best of the bad, February 1980. And my opponent. What's up? It's Man Crush. I have February of 1991, and I'm going to bring you the worst month ever. Trust me. Because as I'm going through this, every time I prepare all my picks, I prepare to win. And I have a really bad feeling that this is so shitty. I don't even know how this is going to go. But <laughs> let's do this. February 1991. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So tonight, our judge, you would have heard him on the Dallas Cowboys radio network, the Big 12 this morning on Sirius XM. And he is also heard on ESPNU. It's Judge Ari Temkin. Just as an aside, guys. April of any year is the worst month ever. And my apologies, because I know I, I'm pretty sure you said in the last episode your birthday is in April, is it not? It is, yep. But it is. It's literally the month where everything horrible in the world happens. Abraham yeah, Lincoln was killed in the Titanic sank. It's Hitler's birthday. April showers bring May flowers. It's the worst month. It's horrible. And this year, my birthday's on a Monday. Even worse. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so maybe this episode won't be all that bad since we're talking about February. Let, uh, let's hope. I don't know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, it's never bad to be good, but sometimes it just feels good to be bad. So let's play some more Dueling Decades. <laughs> All right, let's head right down to our judge, Ari Temkin, for the official toss-off. Did you just go like this? <laughs> <laughs> the hand job motion? Yeah. I, will be, I will be flipping a SD card for the festivities. <laughs> so who's calling it of the year? Uh, Mark, you can go this time since I went this past episode. All right, you ready? Here we go. Tails. Tails never fails. All right. Only this time it did. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> it is the worst of. Oh, man, Crush, you have control of the board, of course. What category would you like first? You know, these are so horrible that I don't even know where to start. So let's just, I'm just going to go at random. Let's start with TV. And so just so I'm on the same page here, I'm voting for the worst 
of these selections. Right. Here. Yep. This is like golf. The lowest score wins. <laughs> yes. Good. It's okay, true. Perfect. Strive for mediocrity. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what we get here. All right. So February 6, 1991. You know, I, I usually I hate bringing up death on a regular episode, but since this is a worst of episode, I think it's fair game. I talked about this the last time we did one of these. Last time around, I actually had John Lennon getting shot. Oof. This one's Oof. not that bad. All right. It's sad okay, nonetheless, good. but it's not that bad. Now, I feel bad for whatever death you're talking about here. It's like it's a, it's a, it's a death, but it's not like John Lennon being yeah, it's, shot bad. Nobody's getting shot here. It, it's okay, just a good. death. It's bad, though. Keep Mark David Chapman in prison, by the way. Sorry. Just, <laughs> just had to throw that out there. Yeah, he was no like shit, up for parole. Right? It's like, please, nobody, please nobody let him out. <laughs> why? Why? You know? All right. So the world lost an actor, producer, singer, comedian, and finally philanthropist when we lost Danny Thomas on February 6th, 1991, due to heart failure. And I think many people, I know Ari's probably trying to look him up right now because this is way before his time. Is this the Wendy's guy? (laughs) It is not. No, it's Dave (laughs) Thomas. Uh, Danny Thomas, most people would probably recognize for his work, and this is why it's a TV thing, on the Danny Thomas show. Uh, which was on television for 11 seasons throughout the 50s and the 60s. But there's more to him than just his work in entertainment, which lasted over 50 years in the business. Most importantly, and I think this is something that we don't hear too often. Ari probably doesn't even know because he doesn't even know who the guy is. Danny was responsible for the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, When Danny was just like an up-and-coming comedian, he said that if he ever made it big, he was going to open a shrine to St. Jude, who just happens to be the saint of hopeless causes. Wow. And once Danny made a name for himself, he began like fundraising in the 50s and 60s all around the country so he could build the St. Jude Children Research Hospital to help children in dire need. And because he also believed that no child should die in the dawn of their lives. Just like he said he was going to do, man of his word, Danny ended up opening the hospital in Memphis in 1962. And for those that don't know, the hospital services children from throughout the entire nation. You know, a lot of stars say that they're philanthropists. This man actually was. And he left us with a lasting legacy. Not only his entertainment stuff, but he left us with that hospital, which is, you know, it's crazy that probably I'd say 90% of the people don't even realize that when they see this commercial on TV, they don't tie it back to Danny Thomas. Yeah, no idea. And I mean, I would imagine St. Jude's Children's Hospital is, a, is responsible for much of, you know, the research that's being done on, on many pediatric diseases and pediatric cancer. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. So that's why it was sad news. Television related had to bring it. Now for the funnier stuff. February 5th, 1991. This one comes in the aftermath of the iconic Super Bowl that took place a week prior. Uh, it was Super Bowl 25. You were about six years old at the time, but I I know you'll remember this one. I think any NFL fan that was alive at that point will remember this one. Probably one of the best games in the history of the Super Bowl. This was the Giants. They ended up defeating the Buffalo Bills 2019 after Scott Norwood went wide right to end the game. Uh, I Personally, I think it's one of the best Super Bowls of all time. And I'm a Jets fan. Oof. It also, I mean, it gave us this. The Scott Norwood miss gave us Ray Finkel, did it not? Well, great, pretty much. I mean, it's great basically based Ventura. on him. <laughs> yeah. But that's not the news story here. Okay. So before the Super Bowl, radio legend, or better yet, as we know him now, the king of all media, Howard Stern, he made a bet with Giants defensive lineman Leonard Marshall that he would kiss his ass on television if the Giants beat the Bills. <laughs> so on February 5th, Howard lived up to the bet. 
And he didn't just kiss Leonard's ass once. He went back for a second peck, and he appears to really enjoy it. If you want to check this out, go to YouTube and look it up. It's on there. And this falls under TV since Howard was actually on late nights on WWOR Channel 9 at that time. Not a lot of people. I don't know if people remember the show. It was on from 90 to 92. Uh, it consisted of 69 episodes. Go figure. One hour, <laughs> one hour each. But here's the amazing part and what makes this show like legendary and makes Howard even more legendary. Just to show how big he was, this Stern show on WWOR, which is basically like a local channel. It wasn't outside of uh, the New England area, I don't think. It did get syndicated, the show. But his ratings on Saturday nights would double Saturday Night Live routinely for two years. Isn't that some shit? Wow. And the, the production value of the show was garbage. Why was it only on for two years? I guess... It cost more to produce it than WWR was making back on the show. So they they killed it. And uh, I think it was mutual. And he ended up leaving, going to cable a couple years later. He went to the E! Network for, I don't know, like 10 years or something like that. So it worked out for him. But they gave him more creativity. He he was allowed to do stuff on that show. Like kiss a giant lineman's ass. Oh, there was way worse shit than that. (laughs) Believe me. This was like prime years of Howard Stern. Uh, but, yeah, those are my two picks. We lost Danny Thomas, uh, actor, philanthropist. And then on the 5th of 91, we get Howard Stern kissing Leonard Marshall's ass because the Giants beat the Bills in the Super Bowl. Man, how am I going to beat that man crush? You get the king of all media. <laughs> and then not only do you bring somebody great like Danny Thomas, you bring millions of dying sick kids with him. Jeez, that's how you that's bring how the do. sadness. <laughs> millions of sick dying children. Thanks, man crush. Yeah. At least nobody got shot. True. Or stabbed. It's true, but John Lennon didn't save any kids' lives. I mean, come on. But he's the greatest musician ever, but he didn't <laughs> save any kids' lives. But you know where someone did often get shot or stabbed? In my television selection. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So for my first television selection, debuting February 5th, 1980, the show Masterpiece Mystery, also known better as just mystery with an exclamation point it was on pbs it was uh, an adaptation of a british television series and a shoot off of masterpiece theater now you're probably thinking i have no clue what he's talking about but yes you do because you just like me and everybody else got duped to watching the first two minutes of this show because if you remember the opening credits of this show, if you watch Doctor Who or anything on PBS late night, this show always came on. The entrance sequence was an animation sequence done by artist Edward Gorey. And it was all black and white. And it was like in a cemetery with a graveyard. And there was like a damsel in distress. And she was whining and moaning. And people were getting stabbed. And there was like a wedding and a funeral procession. And you're like... This looks really dark and cool for PBS. And then the show starts, and it's basically British Agatha Christie mysteries. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say boobs were in the, uh, the the first two minutes. No, I mean, that would have been great, too. But it's like this really <laughs> dark and gritty animation. You're like, oh, this is going to be spooky. And then it's like murder mystery, Agatha Christie, murder she wrote stuff. I can't imagine seeing like tits before like Daniel Tiger when I watch it with my four year old, you know? Like, like it's on before every PBS show. It's like, here's Sesame Street, but first, tits. <laughs> Just look at these. 
This show actually has a very long legacy. Uh, it went away for a little while, but then it came back after it had its funding trouble. It went over a slight uh, format change as they incorporated it more with uh, Masterpiece Theater. Uh, but mystery, that's my first television induction. <laughs> it's a mystery. I've never heard of it. <laughs> if you go on YouTube, just look up mystery with an exclamation point at the end, opening title sequence. You'll be like, oh, I remember seeing this on PBS. It's kind of a disappointment how much great art comes to us from from uh, Europe and more specifically from from England. You know, it's like we won the war. Like we should be sending shit over there. That's good. I think we do. I think just some of that shit slips back. Yeah. yeah. And like maybe as a favor. I don't know. There, there is some good English shit Every, that comes over. Everything on PBS, I feel like, was a British show at one point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> maybe it's just PBS. Yeah, maybe d- it's just- damn all those great artists like da vinci and michelangelo for being born in europe fuck them (laughs) that's a long time ago (laughs) does that count i'm gonna head over to my second television selection and uh this one if you are very familiar with the abc after school specials you might be familiar with this one this was the boy who drank too much starring mr (laughs) scott bayo as a popular high school hockey player who has an alcoholic dad who then decides to take up the bottle himself you know and his friends fight back and forth with him telling him that man you got a drinking problem and he's like i don't have a drinking problem then they go to a party and he pisses himself all over some lady's face (laughs) where does he piss himself you're leaving us a suspense here they go to a party and he pisses himself and it goes all over this lady's rug this girl at this party belts out oh you peed all over my mom's rug you know and it's just like this horrible scene with scott bayo and of course he has to go to rehab so yeah the boy who drank too much currently with only 107 ratings on imdb Wow. Oh, that that's a classic. Dude, when I was a junior in high school, I also knew a guy named Scott who drank too much. And at a house party, he got naked. This dude was like probably as big as you, maybe maybe bigger, like 350-ish. He got naked at a house party, just pulls his pants down, stands on the coffee table and just starts pissing everywhere and while wow. doing like a yeah, like a pirouette. Wow. A pirouette at 350? <laughs> Damn. It was sloppy. That's it was a sloppy impressive. pirouette. He was also holding his cock. He must have been a lineman for the Giants. <laughs> <laughs> he peed on my fucking rug. Dude, peed on your fucking rug. Well, yeah, that's what happened with Scott Bayo, man. He pissed on this person's rug. That was a damn fucked spots. up version of Big Lebowski, man. <laughs> Swap my rug back. So these these after school specials, these after school specials, how were these like long movies? No, it's just were like, like an hour, hour long made for TV movies. But who watched them? Like, did people willingly watch them, or is it more like, hey, like your parents, like this is this is a, nah, you should watch you, this so you don't. Drink. I think in the eighties, when you were young, like I had a pick last year that was an after school special with the uh, the Phoenix Brothers. Yeah, uh, where River was uh, dyslexic, so Not like they addict. always tackled a problem. Like this kid couldn't read good. And his teachers thought he was just dumb. And then it turned out at the end of the episode, he was dyslexic and they were just fucking him over. So, but there were better stories. I mean, the one Mark brought up, obviously, it's a worse Right, because I thought episode. they were more like that, more like the trying to teach you a lesson about like not doing drugs or not drinking yeah. or not to make fun of the dyslexic kid. Pretty much. 
And in The Boy Who Drank Too Much, they, it's basically they just make an example out of Scott Bayo. You know, just because his dad's an alcoholic doesn't mean he has to become an alcoholic too. All of his friends tell him he's got a problem, but he doesn't see it until he pisses all over himself <laughs> and all over some nice lady's rug. Beat on my fucking rug. <laughs> and that's usually like the pinnacle of the episode too. Like him pissing all over himself is the worst thing that he would do in an after school special. Like he's not dying or something. How great would it have been if that was the pinnacle of every episode of after school special? <laughs> somebody pisses on somebody's rug. That's <laughs> <laughs> because he's dyslexic. He's dyslexic. Right. He's peeing everywhere. I think they should just wrap up all of the ABC after school specials into one story. Oh, God, that'd be great. It's like eight hours long. All right. So that's what I got. The Boy Who Drank Too Much and Mystery from PBS. Let's head it over to Judge Ari Temkin for the ruling for round one. Well, this one seems easy if I'm going for the worst of these two. So the winner in this case would definitely be Mark's The Boy Who Drank Too Much and Mystery Masterpiece, Masterpiece Theater, Mastery... Because, I mean, I, I mean, with apologies to the 80s, the 90s had some pretty cool things going on in, in, in film in 1991. And Howard Stern kissing an ass and the St. Jude's research guy, the Dave Thomas. Was it Dave Thomas? <laughs> no, that's Wendy's. That's Danny Wendy's. Thomas. <laughs> yeah, so Dave Thomas was a pretty big badass. So I'll, uh, yeah. He's it's, got that it's, spicy chicken. <laughs> in this case, the winner is the loser and the loser here is Mark. Oh, Damn wow. it. All right, you control the board, man. For the next category, I think we're going to head over to the news round. Okay. So let's do some bad news. Scott Bayo pissed himself. In <laughs> so for my first news story, I mean, this, this is a heartbreaker because it was the end of an era. Uh, February 2nd, 3rd, 4th. All the days kind of run together with this event, and you'll understand why in just a moment, because that was the days that Studio 54 held its grand closing party in its last night in business, because in 1979, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager were arrested for tax evasion. The club closed down in February of 1980 with an end of the modern day Gamora party. <laughs> That's awesome. Were they giving herpes out at the door? <laughs> So Rubel was uh, quoted in the newspapers saying that Studio 54 had made $7 million in its first year and only the mafia had made more money. Well, of course, wow. that sparked the attention of the IRS, who looked into the matter, and they were arrested for skimming $2.5 million. That night, Diana Ross and Liza Minnelli serenaded Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager. Among the guests that night in attendance, Ryan O'Neill, Farrah Fawcett, Muriel Hemingway, Jocelyn Wildenstein, Richard Gere, Jack Nicholson, Reggie Jackson, and Sly himself, Sylvester Stallone, at the closing of Studio 54, December 2nd, 3rd, 4th. It was just a grand old party. <laughs> Nobody slept. No. I wish I was there, man. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. They, uh, There's no way they could ever throw a party like this in the modern world, right? Like, Because it would just... Like smartphones, like just imagine Studio Fifty Four today with like everybody just every always have their phones Awful. out, yeah, just like no. filming everything. That's why you can't Fucking do terrible. it. Terrible, right? It was a safe space. <laughs> Studio Fifty Four was your safe space. 
Studio 54 going down from tax evasion is kind of like John Dillinger going down for tax evasion. You know? It's like there's so much shit going down in Studio 54 that it's like they got it for tax evasion, really. Like just walking there at any night, you'd see hookers doing lines of cocaine off the floor. And you got like yeah, two, oh God. two arrests right there unto themselves. I can only imagine the shit that went on there. All right, guys. So for my second news story, it's not quite as cheerful and as upbeat. So great for this episode. On February 6, 1980, that was the day that the trial started for John Wayne Gacy, who was set on trial for 33 murders. Uh, Gacy attempted to convince the doctors in the court that he suffered from multiple personality disorders, but his lawyers ended up opting to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, it didn't work. They, it took about two hours for the jury to deliberate. He was eventually put to death in '94. But yeah, the trial started February 6, 1980. I'm not going to go into too many details because it is kind of gory and disgusting and disturbing. So even this being a worst episode, I'm sure everyone knows who John Wayne Gacy is and about the uh, tunnels dug under his house. And the clown. He dressed as a clown. I grew up in Chicago, which is where I grew up in Chicago in the Chicago suburbs, not in the same suburb, but that's the area where John Wayne Gacy was. And yeah, that was the horror story when I was growing up, man. That was... He used to dress up as a clown and he was like this, you know, everybody's like, oh, he was such a good guy. Everybody knew him. In fact, he like reportedly told people he was doing this and they were like, ha, 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 ha. Like, no, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, He had employees of his digging these tunnels underneath his house and they never knew what they were for. It's a really creepy story. Can you imagine the smell? Yeah, you've heard stories of the police going in there into the crawl spaces and the smell is just. You can't imagine. It's. I don't want to imagine that smell, man. And this coming from a guy who will willingly use a porta potty at a festival. (laughs) And I don't want to smell that house, man. So, yeah, that's what I got for my news story. The trial of John Wayne Gacy and uh, the closing of Studio 54. Really not sure which is sadder. Wow. So, Man Crush, over to you. Bring the bad. All right. Well, I don't have any serial killers, so there's that. Uh, But February 1991, uh, let's see what date we got here. We're going uh, February 11th, 1991. This one hits near and dear to the heart with me. Uh, Ex-Toys R Us execs are buying Child World. Uh, Story out of Avon, Massachusetts. The parent of Child World, Inc., said Wednesday that it plans to sell 82% of its stake in the financially troubled toy retailer to the group led by former executives, of the Paramus-based Toys R Us, Inc. Uh, and the story goes on and on. Basically, Child World to me was my Toys R Us. So unfortunately for kids like myself who grew up with Child World, this is just the beginning of the end because once upon a time, I had no Toys R Us close to where I lived. So my parents would drive me all the way down to Nanuet and we'd go shopping and they would bring me to Child World. And this place was amazing. Let me let me describe it to you, Ari, because you probably missed out on Child Never World. Never heard of Child World. Never heard of it. Child World looked like a castle in the front. So you would pull up. The whole front facade looked like a castle. I could still picture what the inside of this place looked like. And there was all kinds of tunnels dug underneath the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeffrey the giraffe was underneath the basement. I heard. They had like their own weird uh, guy that was on roller skates. A panda, it looks like. It was, a yeah, it was a panda freaky, on roller skates. Freaky panda on roller yeah, skates. Yeah, if you look up the commercials, 
there's some freaky shit because he's just like child world child world and he's doing this like weird shit on his roller skates but anyhow this place is amazing i remember getting my atari 2600 here i remember getting my turbo graphic 16 from here but all that joy it would come to an end uh even with these toys r us people buying in they could not save it from financial ruin they would end up going bankrupt in april of 92 just over a year later, and they closed their doors for good in September of 92. And that ended an era for kids like me who were forced to travel to go to Toys R Us. And then we finally get a Toys R Us, and the fucker closes. Actually, all of them close, but supposedly they're coming back. I don't know what the story is with that. Yeah, the child world also complained about millennials is the reason that they had to close. I hate when... Like, so Toys R Us loses in capitalism and they're like, we're just going to blame millennials. It's like, no, 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 that's not how capitalism works when you lose. It's because of you. No, they, uh, they just owed a lot of fucking money. Like, right. right. Like, two, like four or five hundred million dollars at the time. So they were just big in the hole. And it was probably because they were trying to sell MC Hammer dolls that came out in fucking 1991 for $18 and nobody wanted that piece of shit. <laughs> It's like, oh, look at this MC Hammer doll for Christmas. Let's buy 8 million units. Somebody will buy these. And now you can find them on eBay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can't touch it. (laughs) The reason I brought that up is because I had an ad from Child World that I I pulled up in my notes. And they have side by side. They have MC Hammer doll for $17.99 and a vanilla ice doll for (laughs) (laughs) $7.98 in the same year. That is awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Poor bastard. I, You know, it's weird. I, when I was doing the research for this yesterday, and I posted it in our Facebook group, if you guys aren't there yet, facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, go to the private group and you'll see all extra shit that we post. But I put a clip from an article that actually compared Vanilla Ice in fe- February of 91 to being the Elvis Presley of the 90s. <laughs> that didn't, uh, didn't really work out. But it's somebody brought up a great point in the group. They're like, "Wow, after 14 months of the new of the new decade, they were already saying this guy was Elvis Presley." Well, I'm thinking maybe you took that a little out of context, man crush. Because much like the Elvis stamp, if we're gonna compare Vanilla Ice to Elvis, what Elvis are we talking about? Young Elvis or old Elvis? Really? <laughs> I think they're talking about the trendsetter that took you know what all the uh, the African Americans were doing and then popularized it uh, like, oh this dude is gonna be like the next big thing Pfft, well he was for that album okay so not not the washed up dead on a toilet elvis right i was gonna say vanilla ice is definitely comparable to elvis taking a shit and dying <laughs> that's vanilla ice vanilla ice was just like elvis only like a thousand hits less than him yeah, yeah, give or exactly. take a few thousand. Maybe that comparison works a little better in retrospect. <laughs> it does at the time. That's the thing. At the time, you look at it, and you're yeah. like, "Really?" And now you're still like, "Really?" But yeah. now you can look at it and go, "Nah, that's, that's not it at all." Nah. All right, so l- let me get to my second story again. No, uh, no serial killers here, but it is somebody that was found guilty of something. Uh, February fourth, nineteen ninety one, and this is something that. People argue about, we posted this in our Facebook group too, and I had people going back and forth with me. This is my opinion with this, and it's going to stay that way, but it's, I'll get into that. But it's February 4th, 1991. Title of the article is Rose Banned from Hall of Fame. And I'll just give you a short clip from the article. Actually, let me just make this bigger because I can't see this shit. I can't even make it bigger than this. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> 
too. All right. This uh, comes out in New York just after baseball's investigation began. Pete Rose was asked if his troubles would affect his election to the Hall of Fame. His response was 4,256 hits, 2,200 runs. That's all I did, Rose said. On a sunny March morning, I'm a Hall of Famer, quote unquote. Well, not in the eyes of the Hall of Fame. The doors to Cooperstown were slammed shut on Pete Rose when the Hall's directors voted 12 to 0 on Monday to bar and ban the baseball star for life from being wow. in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I won't go too deep in the rest of that article uh, pretty much because I can't see the fucking shit because it's too small. But, you know, at the time, I believe this was warranted. But here's the deal. It's been over 30 years or it's been almost 30 years, right? 1991. 29 years. Yeah. Let the man in the Hall of Fame, his numbers as a player, they're undeniable. He never bet against himself or his team. The whole thing is Bart Giamatti had like a huge hard on to shaft Pete Rose. And seriously, if you look at the Baseball Hall of Fame, it's filled with cheaters. Yeah. You got guys like Whitey Ford. He admitted to the muck ball, turpentine and baby oil. Mickey Mantle. You know, they talk about him in 61 doing steroids to keep pace with Maris. Ty Cobb, a gazillion things and a giant dickwad. <laughs> Gaylord right. Perry, you know, he admitted to juicing the ball. And then at one point they said 85% of Major League Baseball were using greenies. And I'm sure this is far before anybody's time, but I think they were doing this maybe up until the early 2000s. But they were eating these shits like Skittles and basically the greenies, they're uh, dexedrine. So they would speed up your heart rate. They would heighten your senses, your alertness, your aggression and your reaction time. So it was basically like these guys were taking speed. Willie Mays was taking these fucking things by the handful. Former Major League Baseball catcher Paula Duca said maybe like. I don't know. This, this is when he's paying for the Dodgers. So maybe like 15 years ago, they were talking about greenies. And he said, if any modern age player had the choice, they would have picked a greenie over steroids. Wow. So it's not like we got a ton of saints in the hall of fame. Let him join the fucking club. But those are my two stories. I'll get them off my soapbox there. What are you going to say, Mark? <laughs> I was going to say, hell, the great pitcher, Doc Ellis threw a no hitter on LSD, <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculously hard to do. That, well, I mean, that probably almost worked against him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so also on this, by the way, Major League Baseball was kind of established in the late 1800s and then the American League in the early 1900s. Jackie Robinson was the first black player in 1947. So you could argue it was cheating to not allow black people to play in the game for nearly exactly. a half century. You have a strategic advantage because there's a really good amount of players that aren't even able to play in a league. So it's, it's funny, this story actually comes full circle this week because Pete Rose actually has petitioned again to get into the Hall of Fame. And right. I'm with you. It's 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 a joke. And and I'm just like, I, baseball writers are so holier than thou, the idea of like, we are the gatekeepers of this magical kingdom that is the Baseball Hall of Fame, that like keeping Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, it's a fucking joke. Yep. These guys are Hall of Famers. The Hall of Fame is the story of your sport. And the story of your sport includes steroids it includes pete rose right. cheating he's one of the greatest players ever and the thing the other thing too is these are the fucking writers that were complicit in these guys taking steroids in that era they benefited from it they got huge contracts to be writers for different uh, different publications they're still benefiting from it writing books about it and they were there and they knew it was happening they didn't do shit about it so yep. fuck them and <laughs> fuck the baseball hall of fame pete rose is a fucking hall of famer yes but it's a horrible story because right here, let's not get too far away from my game here. 
they voted him 12 to 0, these motherfuckers, that yeah, he was yeah. not allowed in, and he's still banned to this day. And like you said, it, and that's why I brought this up, because it was in our Facebook group, because I posted that article that you just mentioned, how he's petitioning to try to get back in after the whole World Series scandal and everything. And it, that, too. I mean, these guys won a World Series by stealing signs, and that they're not the only team to do that. You know, if you're, if, <laughs> it's like they say, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. You know, so yeah, just look at Bill Belichick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't get me into that. I'm, Jet, I'm a Jets fan. Let's not talk about Belichick. <laughs> Fuck, we'll be talking for hours. Any series of news stories that includes John Wayne Gacy is the loser. So, <laughs> so Mark's the winner here. Wow, man, crush! I jump out to a two nothing lead on this one. Oh man, you just say that name, and I'm like, ugh. Yeah, see, that's ugh, why I didn't want to go into too much fuck. detail because. Everybody knows who John Wayne Gacy is, and there's a million other true crime podcasts where you could hear all the gory details. And when it comes to, like, capital punishment for me, I'm like, no, except for, like, then you tell me about John Wayne Gacy, and I'm like, yeah, kill him, like, four times. <laughs> well, here's, here's a fucked up thing, and it's like Mark said before. So he, he went to trial in 1980. He was probably convicted shortly thereafter. They didn't kill this fuck till 1994. What were right. they doing for 14 years? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy how long it takes to kill. I mean, and especially that case. It's like, I get it, but not with him. Like, just yeah. do it right away. Exactly. Get shit over with him. Ted Bundy. All like it's just years and decades. I actually remember that reading that it, it, they did something with his. I think he got the lethal injection and and like it's normally supposed to kill you in like minutes. And it took him like 30, 24 minutes or something to die, which is like it's a, and it's actually a really a painful death, apparently, because it's like you're just collapsing of your insides. So. We could all rest happy tonight, knowing that he died very, very painfully. All right, Mark, where are we going? All right. Well, for the final one-point round, I say we do some hot products. All right. All right. So for my first hot product, February 1980, the biggest news story out there, what everybody was into, was in Lake Placid, of course, the Winter Olympics. It was the biggest thing. So my hot product is Ronnie the Raccoon. Now, if you guys remember this, he was the mascot for the 1980 Winter Olympics, and he was absolutely terrifying. It was a raccoon, and they had like a stuffed doll of him, and he has, of course, these huge eyes. He's kind of waving his arms about with a kind of creepy smile on his face, and that's just the stuffed doll version for the kids. They also had a full-on mascot suit of Ronnie the Raccoon that would walk around during the events and hang out with the fans and everything. But if you look closely at the mascot suit, it no way resembles a raccoon. It looks like they actually took a wolf and just said it was a raccoon because I've never seen a raccoon that has a red nose and pointed ears like that. Dude, it was Lake Placid. What fucking money do you think they had to have like a nice mascot? And, and to make it even worse that Ronnie the raccoon is just the worst Olympic mascot ever, Lake Placid had a living mascot raccoon called Rocky the raccoon. Unfortunately, Rocky died just before the game started. <laughs> so he was replaced by Ronnie the raccoon. <laughs> His illegitimate redhead stepchild brother. <laughs> so for that one month in Lake Placid, New York, that we had the Winter Olympics, Ronnie the Raccoon was printed on every type of merchandise you could think of. Caps, scarves, mittens, every single type of button and accessory you could think of. 
and that was the hot product for that one month. After that, no one gave a shit about Ronnie the Raccoon, and rightfully so. Well, come to think of it, the uh, the runner-up was actually the panda from Child World. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to put him on ice skates and call it a day. When you when you first said Ronnie Raccoon, I thought it was like a Weird Al Yankovic version of Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> it's like Weird Al's Weirdo White Album version of it. <laughs> Why the fuck would they use a raccoon? Like, a raccoon is the worst possible animal to you. Like, what? <laughs> who was like, let's go with raccoon here. It's the worst animal known to man. Well, the reason they picked the raccoon is because it's a familiar animal from the Adirondack Mountains where, like, Placid is. And because of the Native American population in that area, the raccoon has symbolism in that. And Ronnie actually comes from the word, the Native American word for raccoon. So I guess they tried to tie it into the local flavor, I guess. Man, that was a good one. All right, so that's my first hot product, all of the merchandise featuring the horrible Ronnie the Raccoon. <laughs> now, for my second hot product, I'm going to start off by asking you guys a quick question. If you guys could have one superpower, like from a comic book, what would you have? Ari? Well, I mean, I, I always thought I wanted want to be an X-Man. So I guess that's not a superpower. What would your power would... <laughs> be if you were if you were an X-Men? There's a lot of X-Men, bro. <laughs> right. I guess I'd be Magneto. So oh, I would have man. I'd be able to, to control metal. I think oh. it would, would be very awesome. Man Crush, what would be your special powers? Oh man, I was always a big Flash fan, so I'd say oh, super yes. speed. All right. Well, Ari, you're gonna be super excited because in February of nineteen eighty, we got a new X-Man. <laughs> Brand new character debuts. And so you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. What right. are her powers? She's featured on the cover. Gorgeous body, long, flowy, reddish blonde hair, <laughs> tight bodysuit. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about the debut of Dazzler. She just came from Studio 54. <laughs> she did. Now, Dazzler is a character. Her mutant ability is to convert sound vibrations into light and energy beams. You guys both picked some pretty good X-Men powers. This is probably one of the worst ones ever. Great if you're going to a dead show or a fish show where you can take the sound and convert it into lights and trip balls. That's great. But if you're fighting Magneto, not so cool. <laughs> she joined like the Pink Floyd uh, stagehand team. Her special power is just to distract people. <laughs> Anytime you have to like explain your special power, like in multiple detail, like multiple sentences, it's like no, 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 it's sound, and then it becomes light. It's like, wait, what? It's like a math problem on a chalkboard. Like, no, 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 but here's 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 how it goes. It's like this is too much. It's just like Superman can fly, and, and yeah. you know, like flashes. You do what with sound? Right, sound right. wave? Not even sound. What? Sound waves? What the fuck is that? Could you imagine Dazzler's grandma? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> With what? <laughs> Honey, get a new career. <laughs> so Dazzler, the character, was actually commissioned by Casablanca Records in 1978 as a project with Marvel Comics involving Jim Shooter and drawn by John Romita Jr. Now, they wanted originally the character to be the Disco Queen, and they were going to do a, a follow-up movie on the Disco Queen. But what happened is Casablanca Records ran into some financial problems, had to drop out of the project. Now, originally, John Romina Jr. wanted the character to resemble the actress Grace Jones. Uh, but during movie negotiations with Filmworks, Filmworks actually wanted to promote Bo Derek 
for that yeah. movie. So they Valero, had, baby. Yeah. So they had John Romita Jr. change the likeness of the character to more represent Bo Derek rather than nice. Grace Jones. Was she riding a horse nude? She, uh, unfortunately, no. So not only are Dazzler's special powers pretty lame, she was whitewashed on top of that. So that's my hut product. The debut of Dazzler, February 1980. Probably the most lackluster X-Men ever. Not to be confused with B-Dazzler. That's her brother. <laughs> Magneto's like, I survived the Holocaust. What about you? <laughs> He's like, I just got like a disco binge and I can turn sound into blight. It's like, fuck her. That's what happened if you went to the three straight days of Studio 54. You ended up with those powers. <laughs> so Ronnie the Raccoon and Dazzler. What do you got, man, crush, for the hot products round? All right. So February 1991, a little history lesson. So we got the Gulf War began in August 1990, and it didn't officially end until February 28th of 1991, which is my month here. Uh, But I'm sure you remember this, Mark, just how in your face this whole war was. You might actually remember, too, Ari. I mean, for sure. Yeah, it, it seemed like the entire thing was aired on television, not like the uh, the one in the early 2000s. The one in the early 90s was all over the place. And not only were these TV outlets cashing out on the war, but so were retailers. There were Operation Desert Storm trading cards, and I happen to have <laughs> about, I don't know, 50 unopened packs of these that I should probably give away on our Facebook. Remind me of that. Maybe uh, unopened you- packs. Oh, yeah, dude. Oh, my God. You might be lucky enough to get like a Norman Schwarzkopf rookie card. I was going to say General Schwarzkopf. God, that'd be amazing. (laughs) Or a Saddam card or some shit. Uh, G.I. Joe even did it. They had the Desert Apache, the Desert Scorpion. uh, They had Dusty and Sandstorm. Everybody was trying to make a buck on this war. But here's my hot product. There was also a lot of talk about all of Saddam's chemical weapons. Obviously, this went on for years afterwards. And the things that he could do if he was able to get these chemical weapons into the U.S. So what do I find an ad for? For $24.99, or about $50 in 2020, you can get yourself a genuine Israeli gas mask. The ad says, Saddam is insane. We have many other survival supplies also available. Wow. Uh, how's that for the first top product? You can get your very own Israeli gas mask. And let me tell you, from wearing one of these in uh, 2004, they suck ass. They're terrible. You can't breathe. You fog up the glass. So for $24.99, this thing was probably the biggest piece of shit ever. Now, does the Israeli gas mask hold an advantage over, let, let's say, the Swedish gas mask? I think... <laughs> I think because it was like cheaply done. I mean, if you look at the picture, I'll send it to you. Actually, uh, here I'll let me. Just was it actually? It was the Israeli gas mask made in China. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. There you go, Mark. You could buy your very own genuine Israel. Look at the little soldier on the side with the little caption. Yeah. Okay. G.I. Joe says Saddam is insane. Oh, so that's an Israeli gas mask. That's what they called it. I always thought that's more of like the Laramie Tunsil model. You know, that's the one that you can, like, turn into a <laughs> connect bong. A bong to. Right, exactly. You can connect a bong to it, man. I know what you're talking about now. 
<laughs> yes. If, if you're familiar with the NFL draft, it is the same exact one that Laramie Tunsil used about three years ago. Right. <laughs> and Adam sliding down the draft boards and he became one of the best left tackles in football. Yeah. Oh, man. What a Only poor bastard. Weird. He's like 90% of the rest of the league that smokes weed. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> he just happened to do it the right way. But the important thing is he's going to be safe from chemical weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he picked this up for twenty four ninety nine. That's a hell of a deal, man. Yeah, it's crazy fuck. how commercialized the Gulf War became. It's, oh, it's, I mean, it's absurd, it's insane, and it's even crazier because it's essentially like the ramifications of that war we're obviously still dealing with. You know, you could say that's the birth of terrorism. I was looking for toys. I'm flipping through newspapers.com and I'm just going page to page, looking, looking, looking. Because I knew those G.I. Joe toys came out, but I didn't know when. So I had to go page by page to find it. And when I came upon that, I was like, <laughs> that's oh fucking God. horrible. That's a horrible thing that nobody wants in their house because it's frightening looking anyway. <laughs> but anyhow, let's get on to the the funner of the two. Uh, again, February 1991. I'm going to take you guys on a trip back to elementary school. Uh, and I wonder how many people ever think back to Valentine's Day when they were in grade school. Maybe if you had kids, like, I don't know if my daughter ever brought home 30 Valentine's Day cards, but back in the day, totally. we sure as hell did. Yes. We would, oh, yeah. we'd, our parents would buy them and we'd, we'd sling them things out in the little envelopes. And, uh, you know, you had to be careful who you gave what card to and shit because you didn't want to give off the wrong vibe. You know, you didn't want to give your friend one that said, be mine. And your boy would be like, what the fuck? What? <laughs> but anyhow. <laughs> Uh, since totally. Valentine's Day is next week, here's the pick. So in 1991, you can get yourself a WWF Valentine's Day card set. Came with 32 cards in the box to give out to your classmates. And just think how weird it is to give each person in your class a special Valentine's Day card. Like, first off, like, what the hell were we thinking doing that? Like, giving a card to everybody. Uh, but let, let's look at this amazingly horrible set. From the WWF Valentine's Day card box uh, that you could share with your teacher, your crush, maybe just the rest of the hooligans in third grade. All right. So the first one that I came across, I found the box first and then I had to dig them up to find each card from the set. They're fucking great. You can give a special friend a picture of Hulk Hogan flexing with his eyeballs literally popping out of his fucking head with a caption that says, you're my number one Hulkamaniac Valentine. <laughs> It's pretty fucking classy right there. It gets better. Or you can give somebody the Mr. Perfect Valentine's Day card where he clearly looks like he's trying to fart, but he's also judging you at the same time. And it says, you're the perfect Valentine for me. And he's also topless. You know, no shirt on. These guys have no shirts. You're giving these to other second graders. Or better yet, you got the ultimate warrior card where he looks like he's high on fucking meth. Where he's screaming with his arms in the air for no apparent reason. And nothing says I love you like a half-naked adult man in Speedos standing on the rope saying, wishing you the ultimate Valentine's Day. <laughs> or then you had uh, the Rockers with their feathered mullets saying, having a rockin' Valentine's Day. Or Carrie Von Erich saying this one. It said, February 14th is the main event. Oh, of geez. course, wearing nothing but Speedos and alluding to some special event. <laughs> Fucking weird. Then you had this one. This one takes the cake, though, I think. Actually, no, the last two take the cake. You had Jake the Snake straddling a dude 
probably some jobber in the ring and letting his snake just slither on the dude's face. And it says, here's looking at you, Valentine. I'll let you touch my snake. <laughs> it's then ver- the very last one that I came across, maybe there was more cards in the set, but I, these are the only ones I can actually find pictures of. My favorite right here. It's the WWF Valentine's Day card to share with your second grade friends. A picture of the Legion of Doom clotheslining some dude and starting to flip over. And it says, what a rush, Valentine. Or, what a rush, <laughs> Valentine. <laughs> like, what the fuck? So, uh, yeah. So, we got WWF Valentine's Day cards for your friends in uh, first grade. And uh, a Israeli gas mask, just in case you get gassed. By the way, that was not the only year they made those cards. Like, they continued yeah, to make those same cards. Yeah, it was just a, an awful year. year, though, because if you <laughs> looked at the, the selection of the people that they gave for these cards, like Jake <laughs> the Snake, Kerry Von Erich, it was just like a weird year. I mean, I know it was kind of like transitioning out. They didn't get Ric Flair until 92. So it's, I don't know, it's just weird because nobody really liked Hogan anymore in 91. He was really faded. And then, you know, you had the failed Warrior a champion experiment yeah. so it's just a weird year to have a fucking valentine's day card from wwf happy valentine's have some steroids <laughs> <laughs> all right it's the final one point round it's hot products let's go down to judge ari temkin yeah this one's got to go to man crush um it really the the i mean it's this is like the ultimate suckitude of of hot products here when you're talking about an israeli gas mask for toilet like just just imagine getting like your eight-year-old a gas mask you look at the backyard there is like with a gas mask on it's like is this some sort of nuclear nuclear apocalypse what the hell is happening yeah anytime Uh, somebody's merchandising marketing and trying to turn a buck on a war yeah you're a loser America. America. Uh, And then the WWF stuff. I mean, what what doesn't say Happy Valentine's Day other than shirtless men roided up? (laughs) With weird sayings that you know they would never say. (laughs) It's like, that's not a card. Like, who's writing these? They were just like an intern. They're like, hey, we have these Valentine's Day cards. We got a market. Can you just write some captions for these? Well, the same people that write the rest of their programming. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's true. It is true these days. You bite your tug mark. That's Shakespearean drama. Oh, God. Well, we watch it relig- religiously, and it's just, it's gotten bad again. It's just, it goes back and forth, and right now, not good. All right, Man Crush. So it is two to one. You have control of the board heading into the first two point rounds. What category would you like next, man? All right, let's go movies. All righty. You're up. All right, February 8th, 1991, uh, when I was looking for my selections, I was actually hoping that when I was looking for movies that there was at least one sequel because, you know, obviously, let's face it, like most sequels suck and the perfect pick for a worst of episode on Dueling Decades would have to be a shitty sequel. And uh, Hollywood didn't disappoint here. Uh, I was surprised to find a movie that I hadn't seen since it came out, I actually forgot all about this movie, which ma- it makes it even a better pick. Uh, actually, I believe I waited to see this one on cable because I was already close to 14 years old at the time. So seeing a sequel to this classic from my little kid days wasn't that important to me. And because like any teenager at this point, I was like 13 or 14. I wanted more skin flicks. You know, I was watching Skinamax. I didn't want to watch 
a fantasy book adaptation uh, from my childhood. So that's where I'm going with this one. Uh, anyhow, this movie came out six years after the original, which actually seems like a long time for a good movie to have a sequel. But that's because the author of the novel that it's based upon was suing the studio because he didn't like the first movie. So at the box office, this one actually took in about $17 million, which is around $35 million in 2020, but it had an, an enormous 1991 budget of $36 million, which is about $75 million in 2020. So this is a massive flop. Uh, the film cast a young Jonathan Brandis in the leading role as Bastion. And I'm not sure that everyone is aware of this, but uh, Jonathan Brandis actually took his own life in 2003. Uh, it's sad because he was actually, while I was looking at this, he died at 27. So he's a member of that 27 club. Yeah. Which is pretty fucked up. He hung himself. Yeah, he actually did it because of that movie. It, it's possible. <laughs> and I'm glad you know where I'm going with this. Uh, this is the follow-up to the classic Never Ending Story, and it's titled Never Ending Story 2, The Next Chapter. Uh, I, you know, and Hollywood didn't learn. They ended up creating a third never ending story that was even worse than this one yeah. a couple of years later. Uh, that had nothing to do with the book. At least the second movie tried to go over the other half of the book, uh, even though they did it like haphazardly and they left out like the basic message of the whole fucking book with fantasy and shit. And then they revived it again in 2001 as a TV series that was ill received. Uh, way to go, Hollywood. So that's uh, my first pick. Thank you for giving me a sequel is never ending story to the next chapter. They should have just left the book unfinished and they would have been fine. What did they call uh, never ending story three? A uh, piece of shit. Still not done. <laughs> Still not yeah. ending. It's the, the third one is God awful. I remember seeing that on cable like 20 years ago. It's fucking awful. The never ending story three redundant. <laughs> <laughs> I remember just the fucking dog. Of course, everybody remembers the giant flying dog. Yeah, of course. That's all I remember about that movie. Which, that's why you can't follow it up with a second one. That, and that's why I forgot all about this movie until I was looking it up. And I was like, holy shit, that's right. They did try to follow this up with another movie. And it led to this dude killing himself. But, I mean, it was other stuff. He had, I don't, don't want to blame that movie. He His career just kind of spiraled out of control after after the 90s and he actually had a pretty good career in the 90s and it just withered away it's a pretty sad story um but you always see him like you'll be reading a sports article or something and you know they have all those weird stories at the bottom that they want you to click yeah. there's always a picture of jonathan brandis and it says here are celebrities you didn't know who committed suicide and it's like a picture of him <laughs> fucking weird i hate those stories i know it's it, what's weird is it's like they go with headlines that people are going to click on. It's like, fuck, why are people so morbid? <laughs> yeah. yeah and I always to... click it. It's like, <laughs> it's so like I'm going to find somebody new out. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, know it, know it, know it. Oh, he's dead? So did he win? By the way, did the writer win in his suing the, the producers? He, I do not. I think they settled. Okay. That's why they ended up getting the second movie. Uh, I think part of it was he wanted them to finish the story because they stopped it halfway through the book. Uh, but, you know, Hollywood, how yeah. they do shit. Yeah. But this second one, this is like the Mona Lisa of fucking <laughs> shit. garbage yeah, shit movies. Uh, February 15th, 1991. 
And this is a movie I wished that I liked back then. And I remember I hated it. So I went back and I watched it again today and I still fucking hate it. And after I go into it, if you want, it's on YouTube, the entire thing. Just listen to this cast. It's almost inconceivable that this movie could be bad. Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Demi Moore, and let's not forget Humpty Hump and Tupac are also in this. Uh, you know, how could this cast of just amazing comedians win a Razzie, which is like the equivalent of the Oscars for shit movies? Dan Aykroyd won Worst Supporting Actor. Then they were nominated for five more Razzies. Worst Picture, Worst Actress, Worst Supporting Actress, who is actually John Candy playing the role in drag and then worst director and finally worst screenplay. And then they won a stinker award in 1991 for worst picture. Those are some fine accolades, especially for this round. Uh, and let's look at the box office for this, which is fucking blows my mind. And even after watching it and seeing this number and how much they paid for this, I have no idea where this money went except to Chevy Chase's pocket. Uh, as you can expect with this cast, the budget, massive 40 million dollars for a comedy that's over 80 million dollars in 2020 it took in a whopping 8 million dollars worldwide which is about 15 million dollars in 2020 so it's a piece of shit massive flop they could have made it seriously they could have made this movie with any cast and done it for 39 million dollars cheaper than they did <laughs> and had the same exact fucking product maybe better i don't know uh, it's a midnight movie at best straight to rental type movie at best. Uh, and if it was, I totally respect that, but it wasn't, it went to the movies. Uh, however, nothing but trouble by Dan Aykroyd and friends is a monumental disappointment. Again, the movie, nothing but trouble. Uh, I rewatched it today. I still didn't like it. It's a giant turd sandwich. The best thing I read about this movie that sums it up, uh, somebody wrote a review and they wrote Deliverance meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> while on an acid trip with Beetlejuice. And honestly, I would watch that incarnation 10 times before I ever watched Nothing But Trouble again. It's a fucking there's not one part that I laughed at. See, I quite enjoy that film. Oh, you're a fucking <laughs> asshole. You did not enjoy it. I, it's the judge, fucking crap. The judge is great. He's got the little penis tip on his nose. That's the and... only fucking funny thing in the entire movie is that is the tip of his nose is dick. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the movie is a huge pile of shit. And Dan so Aykroyd wrote it. And yeah, he, he wrote the screenplay and he directed it. And it's that shitty. Oh, it's fucking See, I've bad. heard of this movie. I haven't seen it. I did not know that the cast was that good. You know why you heard of it? Because of the Humpty Hump song, or Humpty Hump had a song that had a video on MTV. The Humpty Dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, Tup with Tupac in it. That was like the first thing And it would did. say in the video from Nothing But Trouble, like on MTV, it would say it underneath right. in yeah. that little box of information. And I would always look at it as a kid and be like, what the fuck is nothing but trouble? Because it must have been in the movies for like three days. And uh, I remember renting this back way back. I was in high school at the time I rented it, like years after it came out, maybe like 95, 96. And I was just appalled at how bad it was. And there's people like Mark online that are like, oh, this it's so like underrated. No, it's it's a piece of shit. 
Well, interesting fact about that movie. It actually was the first and last time Dan Aykroyd got to direct a film. Wow. Shocker. Yeah. Other, there are actually a couple of other people that have that distinction. Jack Lemmon did it in 1971 with Koch. And Anne Bancroft actually did it in 1980 with the movie I have first for my movie selection. <laughs> oh, nice. I bet you it's not as bad as this piece of shit. Released February 1st, 1980, directed by Anne Bancroft and starring Dom DeLuise, I give you the movie Fatso. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. I distinctly remember when this movie came out. When you were two? Okay, I should revise that. (laughs) I remember when this movie came out on VHS because I had an aunt who would rent it all the time. She thought this was the funniest movie ever. It's a comedy starring Dom DeLuise. All right, so right there, two thumbs up. Great guy. Well, the movie mostly consists of close-up shots of him eating and or crying. The movie starts off with a close-up shot of a baby breastfeeding, full tit and mouth, and then cuts to a small child, young Dom DeLuise, looking at the child as the child pisses full stream right into his face. Dude, that's funnier than the entire Nothing But Trouble movie. Well, that's where the comedy (laughs) of this film ends because after that it's basically dom deluise's uncle sal dies and that sets off his uncontrollable eating disorder so he tries to get help the rest of his family keeps telling him that he needs to stop eating so much he needs to lose weight so the reason he eats so much is it's that emotional attachment ever since he was a little baby his mom would always just give him food to make him happy So he goes to this uh, Eaters Anonymous group, like this self-help group. They try to help him. He has a brother who tries to help him. He actually chains up his refrigerator and tells his brother, do not give me the key. And if I ever ask for it, here is a phone number to to my help group, and they will come over and help him. So, of course, Dom DeLuise not only doesn't ask for the key, he holds his own brother at gunpoint to get the key just to open the refrigerator to get something to eat. So his whole support group comes over. They all just chill out for a little while, calm the situation down, end up talking about food, and then rip the fucking cabinet doors off the chains and eat all the food in the house. So yeah, this is Fatso with Dom DeLuise. It is an absolutely crazy movie. It's basically Dom DeLuise stuffing his face and crying through most of the movie. And apparently this is the first movie produced by Mel Brooks's production company. Correct. Yeah. So it was it was a failure to begin with, but I yeah. don't know how. I mean, the great Anne Bancroft, I mean, everyone remembers her from The Graduate. In her directorial debut, she made so many missteps. There's just scenes of this movie that cut from scene to scene and they jump storylines. There's no continuing flow to it. But did you have three like all-star comedians in a massive flop? I mean, Hall of Fame comedians, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, and John Candy in a giant piece of shit. You had one comedian. You said one. I had three. But much like yours, my one comedian wasn't funny at all in this movie either. So Yeah, but there was piss in the face. That's funnier than this entire movie. But it wasn't even Dom DeLuise. It was just like some little kid who's like, hey, we need a kid to take a piss shot in the face. <laughs> and the worst part is, is the mother comes in. Like the whole thing shot POV style, which is kind of eerie to begin with. 
So after the pee stream is gone, you just see a hand come in with a towel, wipes the face, and then shoves a donut in his mouth. Like piss still dripping off his cheeks and everything. So yeah, that's Fatso, Dom DeLuise. Uh, don't bother going to check it out. It's atrocious. <laughs> I think we're going to stay with this eating theme on this one. All right, so this next movie, actually 10 days after it premiered in Milan, the film was seized by Italian courts, and the director was arrested and charged with obscenity. He was later charged with murdering several actors on camera and faced life in prison. The cast had actually signed contracts saying that they wouldn't appear on any interviews, other movies, anywhere in the media. So when director Ruggiero Diodaro filmed the movie Cannibal Holocaust, I don't know if this is a film you guys are familiar with. This movie is absolute trash, but maybe all in the best no, ways. It's not that. No, it's not like it's meant to be like that, though. Okay, well, let me tell you why it's trash. Of course, none of the actors were really killed in the film, so thank God. But who were killed were dozens of live animals. All the animals that you see killed in the movie, they actually slaughtered real animals on film. So, yeah, you can uh, you can guess how well that went for the director. He actually says it's his major regret in his film career putting out this movie. So, yeah, it's a very difficult film to watch. It's very graphic, very violent. It kind of blurs the line between snuff film and reality, and that's where a lot of people thought that this was real. Some of the scenes of violence and decapitation and disembowelment are so realistic, they actually thought that those actors were killed. So... Check it out if you dare. It's Cannibal Holocaust. It was released February 7th, 1980. So that's what I got for my movies round. They actually killed animals in this movie? Yeah. They killed, like, their pigs. There was pigs, pigs. and turtles and a few other wi yeah. wildlife. Yeah, they actually... Turtles? Pigs I'm fine with because I eat bacon and I love yeah. it. <laughs> turtles? So this movie gets a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes, and they're killing animals on it. Like, that's amazing to me. 65% of Rotten Tomatoes are like, yeah, but actual animals die in it. Well, I don't care. It's still pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things, though, like back in the day, they right. probably did that shit all the time. Right. Like, now you'd never see any animals. <laughs> and matter of fact, at the end of the movies now, it says, like, no animals have been harmed and blah, right. blah, 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 whatever it is. Wow. That, I was, this was... This round was totally going to man crush until you got to the cannibal holocaust. However, <laughs> however, the never ending story part two, which I thought I had just hallucinated as actually happening. And then <laughs> nothing but trouble, no. which is an all-star cast of comedians and directed by Dan Aykroyd just fucking sucks. So it's, it's even though cannibal holocaust, which is a great name for a movie, and that's a crazy subplot to the story. It still has to go to Man Crush because that's just two just giant turd sandwich of movies. Cannibal Holocaust, don't shit on it, though. Like, because it's actually, it's not a bad movie. It's, I mean, it depends on what you like, obviously. But if you're looking for, like, that grindhouse, you know, like, really, like you said, with, uh, it really is kind of like a snuff film and right. as a film, it's pretty fucked up. But it's, that's what it was meant to do. 
Right. And just the subject yeah. matter alone is really weird because it's not about what you'd think it's about. Really, the subtext of the movie is about media exploitation and about how movies and the media exploit people. But the film in itself is an exploitation film, but they're bashing people that exploit other people in the media. So it's kind of a, a play on itself, which it's is a two-sided sword. It kind of cannibalizes itself, really. Yeah, it's. I think it's on Prime. If you haven't seen that, go to uh, go to Prime. I think it's free still. Damn, they so kill a boa out. constrictor with a machete, which is actually I kind of want to see that. Although a squirrel monkey <laughs> decapitated with a machete, God, that's. I don't remember sad. that scene. I the the turtle one is kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, large turtle decapitated and its limbs, shell, and entrails removed. Yeah, but they they also uh, think I think this is that movie where they cut a dude's dick off and they put it in his mouth. But not actually. But they didn't actually do that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You'll have to watch it. Spoiler. All right, Man Crush. We're going to the fifth and final round. It is three to two. You are up. We are up to the music category. Would you like to go first or would you like to defer? I'm going to defer because I'm tired of talking. You talk <laughs> again. <laughs> All right. So for my first musical entry, I got an album released February 2nd, 1980. And it is the final album. We got from Andy Gibb, entitled After Dark. It had one minor hit on it called Desire and a couple of uh, songs that were duets with Olivia Newton-John. Uh, the album is currently not in print at all, but you can catch it on uh, a few streaming devices if you dare to listen to an Andy Gibb album. Right. Yeah. Because of the album's disappointing per performance, Gibb was actually let go from his RSL Records contract that and his mounting drug problems that he had had over the years. But after the uh, failure of this album, they just couldn't keep him on any longer. And this would be the final studio full-length album that Andy Gibb ever would record. So, yeah, that's my first music entry. It's not a very good one. I'll give you that. It's After Dark by Andy Gibb. So if you're a big Bee Gees fan, maybe you can get into this one. To me, I listened to a little bit of this album. All the Bee Gees stuff sounds the same. Yeah, oh, yeah. Whether it's solo. You can dance with it. Yeah, it's all the I same. I don't even know they hit those notes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all the fucking same. She's just a woman to me. Which is just slowed down of the other song. Yeah, all the songs are the exact same. So, so for my second song, this is going to be a song you guys are going to be familiar with. But I am going to completely destroy it for you. <laughs> God, And I'm going to tell you what this song is about. It's actually about a boy who's sitting in his room with a, just a photograph of a girl who just broke his heart. Now he's staring at this photo and he just doesn't feel like himself anymore. He feels like he's turning into a different person. As he's staring at the picture, he wishes that he had a doctor that would, could take an x-ray picture of her so he could look inside of her. So that's a little creepy. You guys catching on to this, this song at all? Does it sound familiar? No, <laughs> that's what this song is actually about. This song that was released February 9th, 1980 as a single is Turning Japanese by the Vapors. <laughs> that song is actually not about your O face. <laughs> turning Japanese, turning Japanese. The writers of the song actually claim that it's a mishmash of teen angst and that turning Japanese could be turning Israeli or turning Canadian or anything. It's referring to turning. You feel like you're turning into somebody else that you're no longer yourself. 
I think that's just a bullshit story they came up with when they got caught, that they found out that they wrote a song about the face you make when you fucking come. But, hey. So, yeah, this song, it was a one-hit wonder for the Vapors. They never had another hit after this. Matter of fact, the very next year, the band disbanded. Uh, Turning Japanese would also go on to be just be one of those songs that just gets buried in your head. Yes. And you just cannot get it out of your head. So, for that reason, I had to include it in the worst of. So they didn't want it to seem like they wrote a song about the face you make while you're fucking, which is the Japanese face. So they made up this convoluted story about like wanting to see the insides of a girl because they're so obsessed with her. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, that it's about a boy who's just heartbroken about a breakup and he's staring at a girl's picture. Then he feels <laughs> that he's turning Japanese. He's turning into somebody else. I think that's just some bullshit he made up on yeah, the spot right. because he didn't want to be accused of writing a dirty racist song. yeah i don't get it and that's a song by the way that's so fucking weird that you never like you sing and you never question why it's so weird like i've sung that song so many times and like now i'm thinking about like that's a fucking weird thing to sing yeah (laughs) like that's just a weird thing to sing without wondering why the fuck am i singing this (laughs) why am i turning japanese (laughs) why am i turning japanese why do i really think that i am I really think so. I don't know. All right, so those are my two musical selections for this final round, Turning Japanese by The Vapors and After Dark by Andy Gibb. Man Crush, over to you. All right, so February 1991, this is the 18th studio album by the band Uriah Heep. Uh, trying to find a worse pick. You know, it's really tough, especially with music. Because you don't want to like pick something that's crazy. You can. You can kind of just cheat and find something that's super obscure that nobody's heard of, and you win the round. We don't want to do that. We want to try to bring something that you guys have heard of before. So on this album with Uriah Heep, you guys, uh, some people musically like Uriah Heep. Uh, however, this is their first album out of 18. This is their 18th album at the time. They just released an album in 2018, by the way. That's crazy. But this is their first album that they released that never hit North America. This album only was released in Europe and Japan. Wow. We just said we don't want it. Yeah. They're like, nah, <laughs> send it back. Good. Uh, but this is uh, at the point at this point this is the only album that didn't chart for anything. Uh, the album's name is Different World, uh, obviously. Uh, it's a different world that they didn't release the shit in North America where people actually <laughs> buy CDs. It only was released in the same world that they lived. Weird. Uh, but the CD insert, this is odd, too. If you were buying CDs back in the day, the 90s, you would always open it. Your CD insert would have the lyrics, some information, blah, blah. Well, when you bought this album, if you did, if you found it, you, you weren't buying it in North America. So hopefully some Europeans or Japanese people are listening to this. Uh, if you opened it up, that CD insert was blank. It was just plain white. Had no information in the inside of it. Wow. Uh, not something you'd expect from a band that put out 18 fucking albums to this point. Uh, t- <laughs> but obviously, um, you know, I could have grabbed something more sub- obscure than this, but Uriah Heep releasing their 18th studio album to like a limited selection of the world and not putting any information into it. And never charting on anything with this album when they did for, you know, years and years and years. And like I said, they just came out with another album. So they're still doing shit. It's just very bizarre. 
So that's why I threw this one on there as the first pick, and that's Uriah Heap, Different World. But let me get to my second pick. Uh, February 11th, 1981. And I think everyone has a few songs when you're growing up, you just cannot stand them. Uh, like Mark was talking about before, you know, there's always something that gets stuck in your head or they, they could have been hits, quote unquote, for a certain period. But the artist or the band that releases them, they usually flame out like right there afterwards, never to be heard from again. And I'm talking about songs like Mbop, for example, mm. you know, well, here's my 1991 version of Mbop uh, in 1991. Their band name, Another Bad Creation. It meant something <laughs> totally different in 1991. But in 2020, I think the meaning is pretty spot on because they were definitely another bad creation. Uh, albeit on February 11th, 1991, they released the annoyingly titled CD. I fucking hate this. I don't even want to say it out loud. Coolin' at the Playground, you know. That's the name of the CD. <laughs> They couldn't have just left it at cooling at the playground. They had to add, you know, to make it even more shitty. Uh, hopefully shitty enough to win this music round. I don't know. Uh, but let's get to the annoying singles that were played every fucking day on my bus ride to and from school since my bus driver was a lazy fuck and left on K104, which basically just repeats the same shitty nine songs all goddamn day. The first song, of course, is Playground. Uh, which was written by 23-year-old Michael Bivens of Belle Biv DeVoe and New Edition fame. But it was performed by kids that were like nine years old. So you had this 23-year-old write a song for nine-year-olds who were dressed in like these airbrushed overalls with no shirts underneath, which is fucking weird as fuck anyway. It's almost as weird as a WWF Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, then they had Aisha. Don't even get me started on that fucking song because they try to like harmonize. Oh, God. Awful. Uh, but let me just read you some of the lyrics from uh, Playground, if you're not familiar. <laughs> Chillin' cooler than a squeak kicking dirt on my sneakers. Suckers on the corner looking down at their beepers. They couldn't get a job or a nice home, so they want to stay and wait for the payphone. Take JoJo, he's the youngest. Girls jock him because he's reverse dressed. Strolling through the neighborhood, sweating their brother, trying to see... Why he's doing good. Sounds a siren's hit. Rolling through the park, trying to make another hit. Little do they know, soldier's legit. I'm not saying this to put nobody down. This is what I see at the playground. And now I'm going to fuck it up for you. You know. <laughs> so this, you know, these fucking bars are written by some 20-year-old. And he's giving it to some nine-year-old rapping about beepers and his sneakers and God knows what. Uh... If I wanted to hear kids do rap or any song in 1991, I would have just turned on Kids Incorporated. I didn't need this shit. Uh, you know, at, at this point, I'm in eighth grade. If I want to listen to rap, I'm listening to Ice Cube or fucking Public Enemy. I'm not listening to another bad creation. Fuck and, no. Uh, I was more of a crisscross guy. Yeah. Oh, truth. God. This is what I thought of. I thought of exactly <laughs> crisscross when you were talking about him. I, oh, I man. I've never even heard of another bad creation. I always wanted to see them fight, you know, like at a mall somewhere, just throw down another bad creation versus crisscross. <laughs> well, it just seems like there was just not a, like it was just a very uncreative adult that was like, hey, I'm going to make music that's going to be really shitty. But if it's kids, that'll like people will like it. Like that's that was the idea here is like if a kid says these horrible lyrics, then people will like it more. 
Oh man, and I'm sure I butchered it even more than they did, but uh, the album actually it went platinum. Wow! In uh, in 1991, because we're all fucking weak, yep. And we decided that it was good, but then they came out with this is what I was talking about. Like these bands, they come out with these really terrible songs that get stuck in our head, and then they come out with a follow up. And they came up with their follow up in 1993, where I don't know where these kids call, turned like seven years old. I don't even know how old they were at this point. They still look like they're that young, literally. They're handing out fucking Valentine's Day cards at school, but it was so <laughs> awful that no one cared. It didn't hit any. It just nobody cared that this album came out, and the band just disbanded. Shocker! Wow. No more. Another bad creation. They had one and done, man. Just like the Vapors, man. That was it. One and done. And then they disband the next year. This one is tough. This one's very tough. Yeah. The only way I ever remember another bad creation is the random ABC name drop in Motown Philly by Boys to Men, where it's like ABC, BBD. <laughs> See, if this was a best of month, I would have killed it in this month. Like, I had so much shit that came out February 91. And one of those was Boys to Men came right. out with their first, their debut album. Yep, ABC BBD. Yeah, it all came out of like the same people. Not to help you out with your pick or anything, but <laughs> you had on one high end, you had Boys to Men, and then from the same producers, you also had another bad creation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this round goes to Man Crush because of the very aptly named another bad another creation. Bad creation. <laughs> yeah, I can't argue it's with so that. So bad. Token shitty band is what they like, would have been better. But can you believe that this album sold a million copies to go platinum? Like, what the fuck were we, like, why were we listening to this going, oh, this is kind of catchy? I can, like, no, it's not. And if you watch the video, and once they got to Aisha, oh, God, that was actually, I think Aisha came out, pro, I think I hit my freshman year, like later in 92 when Aisha hit probably hit like towards late summer and god what a terrible fucking song that was yeah i don't know how they sold that many albums you're right man crush i think the only thing we can compare it to today are all those like asshole youtube kids like dan tdm and stuff that have like 12 million subscribers who the hell is watching that shit well yeah who the hell was listening to another bad creation <laughs> I, you know, honestly, like a couple weeks ago, I think I messaged you when we were doing this. My wife, my daughter and I we were listening to like old 90s, like <laughs> yeah. hip hop music. And they, these two were like dancing to it. And I was just like putting on random music. I did not put on ABC purposely. I saw that song on my Spotify and I was like, nope, that fucking shit's not going on. <laughs> yep. And I just, I, we might have done crisscross. Because that's wiggity, 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 whack. But uh, no, we didn't do uh, ABC. No way. All right, well, once again, I fall to the mighty man crush and lose yet another battle. That was close. I was sweating. Yeah, that was a close one. I was uh, very surprised I uh, I lost that one. I thought I was going to pull that out there one with Cannibal Holocaust and Fatso. I thought I was getting that momentum, but you know what? Uh, I'm just turning Japanese, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But, wow, don't worry, Duelers. If you guys have missed an episode, you can always head back on DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to our episodes on Facebook, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, really. Now, Ari, I want to say thanks a lot for coming tonight, being the judge. Tell all of our listeners where they can hear your programs. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, Sirius XM on Big 12 Radio, Channel 375, 7 to 10 a.m. But follow me on Twitter at Ari Sports. If you're a Cowboys fan, Dallas Cowboys fan, 
Go check out my YouTube page. I do a lot of great Cowboys videos there. It's uh, youtube.com forward slash RE Sports. All right, Ari, thanks again for being our judge tonight. Now, if you're going to be on the interwebs anyway, head over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades like Man Crush said earlier and join our private group. There you can share some of your very own memories and uh, join in on our trivia as well. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.